Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Actung, actung, James Holland here, and today's extract comes from the diaries of Stanley Christofferson, published as An Englishman at War. And this takes us up to the Battle of Geilenkirchen and then to Christmas in the small town of Schinnen in Holland, just the other side of Germany on the Dutch border. But the action begins in the third week of November as the Sherwood Rangers are about to go into battle with the 84th Rail Splitters Infantry Division an American unit new to combat and new to Northwest Europe. From the 18th until the 24th of November, the regiment fought a continual slogging battle against the carefully prepared and well-thought-out concrete defence positions, which, except for D-Day, was a new experience for us. These defences consisted of numerous concrete pillboxes surrounded by wire and mines. The walls were so thick that not even the tank's 17-pounder gun could penetrate. During the night preceding the attack, we had very little sleep. Artillery concentration started at 03.30 on the morning of the 18th, and at 0500 suddenly the whole area was lit by artificial moonlight, produced by a battery of searchlights situated behind our lines, which proved most effective, and the attack commenced. One gap through the minefields and over the railway was not completed in time, so both A Squadron, less two troops, and B Squadron, which was supporting the leading battalions, used the same gap. B Squadron's objective was the high ground northeast of Geilenkirchen, and A Squadron's the village of Promern. By midday, these two squadrons had knocked out or caused to surrender six pillboxes and had captured 350 POWs, and the regiment can claim to have been the first British troops to have broken through the Seafried line. By the end of the day, both squadrons with the American battalions had taken their objectives, but B Squadron lost Lieutenant Crosby, who was killed when his tank was knocked out by an anti-tank gun. John Semkin, A Squadron commander, drove his tank over a cluster of four mines, which exploded simultaneously. The tank was completely written off. Fortunately, the crew suffered no injury, but were all rather shaken up. John Scudamore was shot in the leg when his tank was hit by an anti-tank gun, and Sergeant Dring of A Squadron received a nasty wound in the hand when he was doing a recce on foot. He came across a panther, which he thought had been knocked out. But when he approached the tank, it was very much alive and engaged him with high explosive. He was fortunate as a shell landed right beside him. Without any doubt, he was one of the regiment's most experienced tank commanders and troop leaders. He appeared to be gifted with a sixth sense and always spotted an enemy tank long before anybody else or before he was seen. He was an expert gunner, deadly accurate and quick with his tank's 75mm. He and his gunner knocked out more German tanks than any other member of the regiment. I recall so vividly a conversation that came over the air between him and another A-Squadron tank commander somewhere in Normandy. Nuts one, 
Sergeant Dring talking. Enemy tank concealed 800 yards to left front. Stop where you are. Nuts one. Never seen a turret with horns. Am engaging the cow. A German Mark IV tank was forthwith brewed up by an anti-tank shell from Sergeant Dring. His wound gave him subsequent trouble, which prevented him from returning to the regiment. However, for his sake, I was extremely pleased, for he had fought among the leading tanks of the regiment from El Alamein to the Seafried Line, and he was one of the very few NCO tank commanders of a Sabre Squadron who had survived so much action. On the 19th of November, B Squadron, supporting the same battalion, was ordered to capture the high ground south of the village of Verm, an advance of 1,500 yards. This proved most difficult owing to the open ground and the very cleverly concealed pillboxes. The squadron commander, Peter Soleri, had his tank destroyed and was wounded for the second time. C Squadron spent the day clearing the north end of Prumern and the orchards to the east and knocked out three German tanks. Second Lieutenant Holmes of that squadron was instantly killed when a high-explosive shell landed on his tank. Among the other casualties, Corporal Whitfield, an A Squadron fitter, and Corporal Hewitt of B Echelon were killed, a mechanic quartermaster Sergeant Scott and Sergeant Collis wounded, Sergeant Collis for the third time. Technical Adjutant Bridgeford, a mechanist quartermaster Sergeant Scott, carried out most sterling work in attending to various damaged tanks, because even after the battle had gone forward, the shelling still continued, and they had to work under most difficult conditions. A Squadron had a comparatively quiet day except for one troop under David Alderson, which continued to support the 333rd Regiment in capturing Geilenkirchen and won the sincere praise of the Americans for the support they gave them. November the 20th proved a continuation of the previous day's operation. Progress was painfully slow, as the pillboxes had to be eliminated one by one, and each one was supported by fire from another. A Squadron, still fighting with the 333rd Regiment, cleared the high ground northwest of Geilenkirchen, but owing to the enclosed country, it had to stick to one road, which made progress extremely difficult. I spent most of the day with B Squadron in the Prumern area, and was present when Hubert Beddington, who had recently joined the regiment, suddenly saw a white flag being waved from a slit trench. Hubert jumped up from his tank, and advanced with revolver drawn to make a capture, and was somewhat taken aback when one German, almost seven feet tall, clambered with his hands up from the trench. Hubert, who was only five foot four, marched him back to his tank, but had to stand on it in order to search the German for arms, which presented a truly remarkable spectacle. Hubert, unfortunately, was wounded on the following day, together with Alderson, who had done so well with the 333rd Regiment. The 21st was yet another slogging day. A Squadron with 333 Regiment was given the job of attacking Verm, and B Squadron with the 2nd Battalion 334, the village of Beek, not to be confused with the Nijmegen Beek, and C Squadron with the 3rd Battalion 335th, the high ground north of Beek. No progress was made, and we suffered heavy casualties. A German anti-tank gun from one pillbox knocked out three tank flamethrowers, which were supporting us in three consecutive shots. The attack against Beek and Verm continued throughout the 22nd and the 23rd. It was decided not to attack Beek from Promern, which had already proved so costly to the Americans and ourselves, but to launch the attack from a village called Apweiler, which lay due south of Beek. A composite squadron from B and C squadrons, formed under Terry Leinster, went in, supporting the 405th combat team under a barrage and smokescreen. It reached the outskirts, but did not succeed in penetrating into the centre of the village. During this action, Sergeant Butler from A Squadron was killed when an anti-tank shot from a German self-propelled gun brewed up his tank. He was one of my most reliable and experienced NCO tank commanders when I commanded A Squadron with the Crusaders in the desert. 
and I felt his loss most keenly. A hunt servant before the war, he joined the yeomanry and showed himself quite capable of speedily learning the art of gunnery during the time we were gunners into Brook, proving himself an outstanding tank commander when the regiment became mechanised. By the evening of the 23rd, Terry Leinster's composite squadron had dwindled to eight tanks, and since the action of the Seafried line had started, ten tanks from the regiment had been completely brewed up, five damaged through enemy action, and five badly bogged. The officers from the Royal Gloucester Hussars, who had recently joined the regiment, saw action for the first time, and deserved the highest praise for the way they fought, particularly Dick Coleman during the attack on Beak, when he led his troop with great determination through the smokescreen into the orchards on the outskirts of the village, which were strongly held by anti-tank guns. Also to John Hyde and John Scudamore, who showed equal dash and determination. The Americans told me they had put some of our men in for American decorations, but none came through. So many outstanding things were done during this war, which so thoroughly deserved an award, but were never witnessed. I was most thankful to receive orders on the evening of the 23rd of November that the regiment was to be relieved by a battalion of American tanks and would be placed in corps reserve to proceed to the pleasant Dutch village of Schinnen, six miles from the front. So ended six days of the most unpleasant and costly battles, fought in continuous rain and mud against a very determined enemy. During the six days of battle, B Squadron alone suffered 30 casualties. 25 tanks were used in all, of which 16 after being repaired, were eventually used again. For all four troop leaders, it was their first battle and a considerable baptism of fire. The violence, the cold and constant rain, the lack of regular hot meals and other discomforts ensured that both squadron and regiment were both more than ready for a rest. The regiment had already spent a few nights in Shinin en route to the Seafried Line, so the squadrons returned to their same billets. The local inhabitants gave us a most sincere and affectionate welcome and turned out in full force when we arrived, and there was genuine distress and even tears among those of the inhabitants who would house those who had been killed since our previous visit, which was most touching. Regimental headquarters once again established itself at the local pub, and the Baron, this is the Lord Lee who is his second-in-command at the Sherwood Rangers, and the Baron and I had each had a comfortable room and shared a bathroom. He confided to me that each bath cost three bars of chocolate, but it was well worth it. We soon discovered that our rest would not be so complete as anticipated. Two troops had to be at four hours' notice, one squadron at twelve hours' notice, and the remainder of the regiment at twenty-four hours' notice. And furthermore, I had to take command of a corps mobile force known as Fox Force, consisting of the Sherwood Rangers, the 43rd Recce Regiment, one squadron of horse guards, armoured cars, and one battery of anti-tank gunners. On the second night after our arrival at Shinnin, the regiment received an invitation from the Burgomaster to attend a concert in the village hall, given by the local brass band, which we accepted, and I invited the brigadier to dine and attend with us. The band had not played for five years, but they turned out in full uniform and gave us some stirring music. We all sat in the front row, only a few feet away from the players, who all demonstrated the greatest enthusiasm, each appearing quite determined to make more noise than his neighbour, and in consequence, we were almost blown out of our seats. During the interval, the Burgomaster made a speech in Dutch and I replied in English and both speeches were interpreted by a Dutchman who spoke both languages fluently. After the concert was over and the brigadier had departed, Chris Sidgwick, our battery commander, insisted that we should celebrate and give a variety of reasons. After the concert was over and the brigadier had departed, Chris Sidgwick, our battery commander, insisted that we should celebrate and gave a variety of reasons which appeared adequate, so returned to the mess and drank. 
On his way home, in a hilarious mood, he visited A Squadron, which was listening to a piano duet rendered by the daughters of the house in which the officers were billeted, while the parents and the third daughter, with A Squadron officers, sat in dignified silence, attentively listening to the music. The place was suddenly disturbed by Chris bursting into the room, seizing the old mother around the waist and doing an old-fashioned waltz at double speed around the room. On completing two circles, he released his most astonished partner and left the room as quickly as he had entered it. The recital continued, but the next morning, Chris denied all knowledge of the incident. The Corps Commander, General Horrocks, addressed the regiment and congratulated us on our recent actions with the Americans. He told us again that he had selected us for this operation, as he considered that we were the most experienced armoured regiment under his command. I suppose Corps Commanders must say nice things to troops just out of action but I do feel that he was sincere in what he said. The following officers arrived to join the regiment, Geiger, Wallen and Smith from Brigade Headquarters, and Cameron from the 4th 7th. The brigadier asked me if I would take Cameron, as he was not at all happy with the 4th 7th, which I think was somewhat prejudiced, owing to the fact that he had risen from the ranks. I found him somewhat awkward in manner, but very brave in battle. On the last day of November, with Stuart Hills, John Semkin, Jack Holman and Sergeant Nelson, I attended an investiture held by Montgomery at Brunson, at which he announced the great news that home leave would be permitted to all those who had been in the theatre of war for six months. This came as a most pleasant surprise, especially after the permission of our own brigadier. He told us the details of a scheme called Python, which was to come into operation. This meant compulsory repatriation for all those who had been abroad continuously and who had had less than six months in England. This would have been serious for the regiment, as it involved approximately 100 men, all of whom had been with the regiment for a long time and held key positions, if the alternative of a month's leave had not been granted. I was glad when most of those who were eligible for the Python scheme chose the month's leave. Should they have chosen repatriation, they would have been posted to another unit in England, with the possibility of being sent out to another theatre of war. On the 1st of December, General Montgomery paid a visit to Brigade Headquarters for the purpose of meeting some of the older members of the Brigade. The following from the regiment were introduced to him, Sergeant Pick, my signal sergeant, Sergeants Jones and Lanes and Corporal MacDonald. Before his arrival, the Brigadier expressed his displeasure at the very low standard of saluting and smartness, which he complained was very evident at the investiture. During his address, the Brigade Major rushed in and announced Monty's arrival 15 minutes before schedule. All the commanding officers had to make a very hurried exit through the kitchen, which caused the brigadier's pep talk to be somewhat less impressive. On the 3rd of December, Colonel Fair and I left for Brussels to visit 21st Army Group for a discussion about reinforcements. I saw Tim Redman, who used to command the Greys. On the following day, I had lunch with Derek Warwick, who had been doing staff work since he received a head wound in the desert. He told me that he hoped to rejoin the regiment after his next medical board. The two days' break in Brussels was most welcome, as usual, Arthur Fair found himself some female company and insisted that I should dine with him and his lady friend. I was somewhat apprehensive about his girlfriend, whom he told me was a chance acquaintance, and I had certain qualms when she insisted on bringing a partner for me. This was nothing compared with the shock I received when they both appeared at dinner time. I almost bolted when I saw the blonde number. He was to be paired off with me. I spent a most uncomfortable evening and my dinner was completely spoiled, dreading that some of the brigade or regimental officers on leave in Brussels might dine at the same restaurant. On my return to the regiment, I found the Baron in a flat spin. 
He was trying to organise a demonstration tank shoot for the benefit of the 52 Lowland Division, which had not operated with tanks before, carrying out Operation Dutchman for the local defence of the area, necessitated by the dropping of German parachutists, and to plan Operation Shears, in which the regiment was to take part in cooperation with the 43rd Division for the capture of Heinsberg, and to push the Germans the other side of the River Ruhr. Much to our delight, Operation Shears was eventually cancelled, owing to the bad weather, which had made the ground quite impassable for tanks. About the 18th of the month, news arrived that the Germans had made a major breakthrough in the Ardennes, and that they were driving towards Liège, and as a result the core plan for an attack on the Reichswald, the extensive forest to the east of Nijmegen, was cancelled. This very offensive thrust, which caused certain panic, especially among the Americans, proved to be a final desperate attempt to split the British and American armies. Frenchy Halton had gone to Paris to see some of his relations and returned to the regiment with great speed, anticipating that we should be in action. But as it turned out, the Ardennes offensive did not involve the regiment at all. Christmas the regiment spent in the village of Chinon, and we had a very pleasant time. The day started with Christmas service, at which we sang numerous carols and received a most stirring address from Padre Skinner, and at lunchtime each squadron had its Christmas dinner, consisting of fresh pork, tin turkey, vegetables, plum pudding and a bottle of beer for the men. With the RSM, I visited each squadron and wished them a happy Christmas. Corporal Sam Kirkman of Sea Squadron had somehow managed to dispose of six bottles of beer and came stumbling to meet me when I arrived at Sea Squadron. During static periods, he always caused trouble and was a grouser of great magnitude, but he ended as Sea Squadron signal sergeant. Jack Holman declared him as being one of the finest wireless operators in the regiment, on whom he relied so much in battle. On Christmas afternoon, the regiment entertained the children of Shinnon with a party and a Christmas tree. Neville Fern dressed up as Father Christmas and George Cully, the OP from our Essex Yeomanry Battery, as a clown and these two rode on a sleigh drawn by a honey tank through the streets of the village, all the way to the village school, followed by delighted children who all tried to scramble onto the sleigh. It was a typical Christmas as the ground was white with frost and snow. Every man has saved his sweet and chocolate rations to enable each child to have a present from the tree distributed by Arthur and George who worked like Trojans throughout the afternoon. George Cully then entertained the children with a display of acrobatics at which he excelled. He was short in stature, very thin, and always wore a thick moustache of great length, of which he was extremely proud. He possessed a delightful sense of humour and a lovely nature. In battle he excelled as a gunner and observation officer. The officers' Christmas dinner was held on Christmas night, and for the first time since we left England, all the regiments sat down together to a meal. Derek Warwick came up from Brussels and spent Christmas with the regiment. Every officer received a present from a small Christmas tree, and I was presented with a packet of army biscuits. So ended my sixth and last wartime Christmas. I had spent two in England, two in the desert, one in Palestine, and now one in Holland. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.